This is season six of the Mini Culture Podcast. I'm your host, John Gebertatios. Minnesota has a lot going on below the surface. The sandstone underneath the Twin Cities is chock full of caves and catacombs. Some are stormwater drains, some are centuries-old tourist attractions, and some have existed undisturbed for millennia. But in the 1930s, a cave in St. Paul was used for a new purpose, the invention of blue cheese. Here's Tony Williams with more. When I was a kid, growing up in Minneapolis, I loved cheese. Bougie cheeses were a staple at my dad and stepmom's house, especially during holiday parties. But one kind always seemed more adult than the others. Blue cheese. It was the kind of thing that grown-ups loved, but I could never understand why. It didn't help when I found out that what makes blue cheese blue cheese is mold. Ugh. But I was always trying to seem more mature than I was. So, when my parents told me it was an acquired taste, I made it my mission to acquire it as soon as possible. Eventually, I got it. Blue cheese is an uncompromising flavor. On a wheat thin, or with a pear, or even on a burger, it adds something completely different. A flavor that exists in perfect tension with everything else that's going on around it. Of course, I didn't know yet how deeply connected blue cheese was to Minnesota, or how much I'd come to respect the process of making it. That came much more recently. Welcome to the Mini Culture Blue Cheese History Tour. Please keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times, grab your favorite wedge of brie, and pour yourself a glass of whatever it is you drink. We've got a journey across time and space ahead of us. First, we'll head to medieval France. Blue-veined cheese has a long history, starting with the French cheese, Roquefort. roquefort sous solzon is a small town in the south of France where cheese has been made for millennia. French legends have it that one day, a young shepherd was hanging out, eating his lunch of bread and cheese in a cave, when he sees this hot girl outside. I'm not making this up. He's so into her that he runs out of the cave to talk to her, completely forgetting his food. Relatable. No word on whether he got the girl, but apparently he remembered his food a couple months later and went back for it. When he got there, he found that the bread had gotten moldy and some of it had spread to the cheese. And then, I kid you not, this dude decides to eat it anyways and gets a huge surprise. That moment was the birth of Roquefort. By 1925, it was so important to the region that the French government created an AOC for it. No, not that AOC. This is the Appellation d'Origine Controlée, or Appellation of Controlled Origin. No, I don't speak French. Thanks for asking. You know how sparkling wine can't be called champagne unless it's from the Champagne region of France? Yeah, Roquefort was the thing that started all of that. There were other blue-veined cheeses by then, like Gorgonzola from Italy. But what we call blue cheese, capital B, capital C, was invented in the 1930s in sandstone caves right here in St. Paul, Minnesota. I talked to local cheese archaeologist Greg Brick to find out more. My name is Greg Brick, and um, I'm a geologist and author. Okay, so he's not just a cheese archaeologist. I first heard about the University Cheese Caves from Greg's book, Subterranean Twin Cities. 
Greg was an intern at St. Paul Public Works in the 90s, and he came across a bunch of Cold War era maps of the Twin Cities underground. Basically, the city was mapping out caves for use as potential fallout shelters in case the Soviet Union nuked us. But Greg saw something he thought was much more interesting on the maps, located right at Ohio Street and Plato Boulevard, right near Harriet Island in downtown St. Paul. And I saw this notation on one of the maps that said, you know, the University Cheese Cave. And I what? What is this? Basically, the story goes back to the 1930s with this U of M dairy professor, Willis Barnes Combs. At the time, Combs was really into mushrooms, and there were these sandstone caves where people were growing and selling mushrooms down by the river. One day in 1926, he was picking some up when he noticed that the lantern in the cave was rusty. This got him real excited because the caves were cold. Cold, humid caves are hard to come by, and these happened to have almost exactly the same conditions as the caves where cheese was made in Roquefort. He said, you know, these, you know, said there's some mushroom caves here, and not every cave here is being occupied, is being used for something. Why don't we ripen um, cheese in these caves? Let's give it a try up here. So he did. His first batch didn't turn out great, but by spring 1934, he had 10,000 pounds of Roquefort-style cheese, which had never been made at scale in the United States before. So by the time World War II came around, um, French Roquefort imports were cut off by the World War II. Um, and so he really started touting this Roquefort substitute. After France was occupied by Nazi Germany, cheese imports into the United States dropped by a huge amount. As it got harder to get Roquefort from the source, the demand exploded for Combs Roquefort-style cheese. But the French weren't exactly happy about this. You know, you think during World War II they'd have other things to worry, to worry about, about like, given that they like, weren't you, you're a, being, a successful yeah. country. Yeah, yeah, we're being here, being taken over. Yeah, don't worry about this little cheese thing. And but you know how the French are with their cheese, so I <laughs> with their their fine foods. So. Yeah. M. Henry Cassot, a member of the French Trade Commission, flew all the way out from Washington D.C. to check out the cheese caves. He actually liked the cheese, but told them they were not allowed to call it Roquefort under any circumstances. Remember that AOC thing I mentioned earlier? You know, dude, you can't call this Roquefort that because Roquefort is a specific cheese grown in France with sheep's milk and you're using cow's milk. So this is fake. This is, you know, this is fake cheese. You can't do this. That's Greg pounding the table for emphasis. He's really getting into it. And she says, okay, I can't call it Roquefort. What can I call it? Okay, well, it's got these blue veins of uh, mold running. Hey, we'll call it blue cheese. Voila, now we got Minnesota blue. That's how Minnesota blue was born. So was that, as far as you know, was that the first time like that type of cheese was ever described as blue cheese anywhere in the world? I, I'm thinking it is. Um, it was certainly one of the early uses. I, I will say this, it is why, because of that French interference, it is why we do call it blue cheese instead of Roquefort. Otherwise, we would be calling it Roquefort to this day if the French hadn't intervened on that. I'm, I'm sure of that. Now this sounds wild, but all of the cheesemakers I talked to agreed. Blue cheese was invented in a cheese cave in downtown St. Paul and only got popular because Nazis suck and we couldn't get French cheese. Mind blown. 
Land O'Lakes and Kraft also set up production plants here. And during the war years, St. Paul came to be known as the blue cheese capital of the world. No joke. Imports of Roquefort stayed down after the war, and blue cheese was a huge business in St. Paul through the 50s. As technology advanced, though, cheesemakers started building artificial ripening rooms, which they could set up wherever. This was the beginning of the end for St. Paul's cheese empire. In 1965, a huge flood submerged the caves, and that was pretty much the death knell for cheese ripening in the caves. The caves did eventually drain, and Greg got into them in 2003, but unfortunately, he didn't find anything from the cheesemaking era. I tried to check them out myself, but they've been closed off completely sometime in the last 20 years. So, instead, I decided to head over to the U of M to talk to the dairy department. I heard they still make Minnesota Blue, and I really wanted to get my hands on some of it. Next stop, the St. Paul campus. If you've never been to the meat and dairy sales room at the U, it's definitely worth your time. The shop is tiny, barely big enough for 10 people to fit in and filled to the brim with fridges. In addition to cheese, they sell ice cream, meat, and other food made at the U, all at great prices. I didn't see any blue cheese, and when I asked, the cashier told me they were in the middle of making a new batch. Bummer. I did get to talk to the head of their cheese-making operation, though. I'm Ray Miller. Um, coordinator of pilot plant services at the University of Minnesota, and we are in the Joseph J. Worthison pilot plant. He's got a long history here. He's been a cheesemaker at the U for 40 years, and his dad was a cheesemaker for 40 years before him. He showed me around the U's pilot plant, which was pretty sweet. It's this massive space packed to the brim with gleaming steel machines on tile floors. I felt like I was in Willy Wonka's dairy factory. Along the way, he explained the process of making blue cheese to me. First, you take a bunch of milk and you add some fungi cultures to it. Penicillium roqueforti, to be specific. It's not the same mold that goes into the antibiotic penicillin, but it's from the same family. From there, it's off to the races. Yeah, kind of starts out, kind of starts out right here. This is a cream separator. So we would have the milk in a storage tank like that. So that keeps the milk cold at 40 degrees or, or lower. And, and then from there, we pump it through the cream separator, which is a series of discs mm -hmm. that spin. And you get your cream out this port. You get your skim out that port. So we'll convey all the skim that way into the vats. So this vat will hold 5,000 pounds of milk. They take the milk and homogenize the cream, basically even out the fat content. After all that milk curdles, they put the curds in metal hoops. Over time, they settle under their own weight into cheese wheels. They punch holes into them so the mold has enough air and space to spread out, then stick them into a sporulation room to let the mold grow for a couple weeks. That's where they were at when I visited. After this, the cheese wheels will get sealed in plastic and go into a special aging room where they'll ripen for 90 days, giving the cheese that nice moldy flavor. You don't have a secret wheel of one of those hiding around that hasn't been bought out yet, right? No, no. 
So here I was, working on a story about the history of blue cheese, and I still hadn't gotten to eat any. Whack. Incredibly whack. Luckily, we still have one more stop on our blue cheese tour. Caves of Faribault, about an hour south of the cities. Caves of Faribault goes back almost as far as the University Cheese Cave. A guy named Felix Fredrickson started aging cheese in the cave in 1936. He was a food scientist in touch with the folks at the U, and he decided to try and start up a larger, more commercial operation than what they were doing in St. Paul. It eventually turned into Caves of Faribault, the business that's still there now. Their place is gorgeous. The river winds through some trees nearby, and it's overlooked by these massive sandstone bluffs. I connected with the current head of their operation to get a look at the caves and hopefully try some cheese. My name is Ruben Nilsson, and I'm the general manager and head cheese maker at Caves of Faribault. We specialize in blue vein cheese, so that includes both blue cheese and gorgonzola-style cheese. Just for comparison, the U makes about 1,500 pounds of blue cheese a year. Caves of Faribault makes more than 3 million pounds. And it's all still aged in the caves Felix started using back in 36, almost exactly like the cheese caves in St. Paul. I think really the benefit of cave aging is those unique flavors. There's a little bit of a dankness to it, you know, a little mushroomy, earthy, but you do want to show off the quality of the milk. Uh, so you call it, you know, slightly barney or animal. So you have like a little bit of the grass in the summertime. You want that, those notes to shine through, but with that kind of funk <laughs> or dankness to it. We want the funk. Gotta have that funk. Oh. Anyway, he described the caves as almost like a cathedral of cheese. So the walls are straight up, you know, about seven feet, and then they start coming together. And so the peak of the cave is 15, 20 feet above your head. Uh, and they're about 15 feet wide. Uh, average length is maybe 100, 150 feet. So they're these just nice long halls. And we put a, a whitewash on the wall because sandstone is very brittle. Yeah, it's, it's very easy to, to brush off some sand. So that gives us a, uh, a surface that's porous to let moisture through, but, uh, but it's cleanable. <laughs> and uh, so you all, it's also very well lit because you have these nice white walls. I really wanted to see him. I love caves. So Ruben and I put on some safety gear and headed down a few sets of stairs into their facility. Ah, it has that nice cheesy smell. Yep. Okay, so it wasn't that nice. It started out kind of pleasant, but the longer I spent in the production facilities, the more the smell of that sour curdled milk started to get to me. Apparently, they have to make sure people can deal with the smell and claustrophobia of the caves before they hire them. The caves really are a cathedral of cheese, though. They're incredible. Like Ruben said, they're entirely white, like stepping into an alternate universe where everything is made of milk. As you walk through them, you see dozens of carts lining the sides of the tunnels with these massive wheels of blue cheese. It just goes on and on, this underground warren of dairy products. How many pounds of cheese do you guys normally have in production at one given moment? Ripening. Uh, we'll probably be somewhere between a quarter and a half a million pounds of cheese. Nice. 
That's a lot of cheese. Yeah. <laughs> we wrap up our tour and head to the surface. It really is amazing how the whole operation works. The history of blue cheese is this wild synergy of natural caves, agriculture, industrial ingenuity, and dumb luck. From horny sheep farmers to Nazi invasions, a lot has gone down to bring you a little wedge you can buy at the grocery store and eat with some crackers. I've loved blue cheese for years now, but I've gained a ton of respect for the process itself. The scientists, the farmers, the cows, the mold, the cheesemakers, the caves, they all cooperate in this process that's both ancient and modern just to bring that weird, unique taste to your dinner table. It's really cool. Okay, only one thing left to do now. Give it a try. I stopped by Lunds and Byerly's on my way home and picked up some Caves of Faribault cheese. I thought I'd bring it over to some real cheese experts. Hi, I'm Chuck Williams, and I'm your dad. I'm Rachel Williams, and I'm your stepmom. So this is uh, St. Pete Select, and um, it was made in the way that cheese was made in the University Cheese Caves in St. Paul back in the 30s. Um, this one was made at Caves of Faribault down in Faribault, and it's a cave-aged blue cheese. You guys like blue cheese, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, grab a little bit of it, throw it on a cracker, and um, eat it and sort of tell me what you think of it, what it tastes like, what you get out of it. Okay. All right, here we go. Mmm. <laughs> wow. It's really soft. It's really creamy. And it tastes almost herbal. It's not really as pungent. It's more like, it tastes like herbal. I certainly get that herby sense to it. Um, I also get a darker, sweeter kind of a taste from it. Um, sort of a, it's not like a traditional Stilton or anything like that at all. It's saltier and um, and herbier. I think that's a good description of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's much more subtle. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And you can taste the grass. I think that's yeah, that's you a, can that's really a, taste the grass. Yeah, that's there. a good way of describing it. Yeah. yeah. This was maybe my favorite part of working on this story. At the same table where I tried to like blue cheese as a kid, I was sharing it with my parents as an adult. I was officially a cheese grown-up. And I even taught them a thing or two. I do love when a story comes full circle. Thanks for having us try it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks yeah. for trying it. And for introducing me to blue cheese in the first place. There you go. Thanks. Well, and all the other cheeses, too. Yeah, and all the other cheeses, too. Yeah. This is where I leave you, with cheese, crackers, and good company. Thanks for joining me on this odyssey through the history of blue cheese in Minnesota. Pick up a wedge for me tonight and enjoy. For KFAI, I'm Tony Williams. Thanks to Greg Brick, Ray Miller, and Ruben Nilsson for helping us learn about blue cheese in Minnesota. If you want to learn more about the cheese caves or underground spaces in the Twin Cities, check out Greg Brick's book, Subterranean Twin Cities. You can buy Minnesota Blue at the University of Minnesota's dairy store or Cave of Fairbowl's cheese at most cheese shops around the state. Support for Mini Culture on KFAI has been provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Season six of the Mini Culture Podcast is executive produced and edited by Julie Sensulo with editing help from Ryan Dawes and Melissa Olson. I'm your host, John Gibertatios. Thanks for listening, friends.